Welcome back tonight. We're thankful you've chosen to be with us. We hope that as we have gathered together tonight that we can learn things from God's Word. That's our purpose of being here and worshiping God. And Tonight as we uh, do that, I hope you'll turn with us to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. As you know, we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians and we'll spend our time tonight together in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, the Bible simply begins, or that chapter begins with these words, Now concerning food offered to idols. Now, somebody is bound to say something like this, Well, we don't eat food offered to idols. So this chapter really doesn't apply to us. It really doesn't have anything to say to us. And so, preacher, you are going to have a very short sermon tonight since we don't have that problem. We, we don't have the same kind of problem that they had back in 1 Corinthians in that day. Well, our temptation really is to either skip over it or run through it really fast and, and say, you know, it really doesn't apply to me, but I want you to consider something with me tonight. God knew that the principle that's involved here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a principle that not only applied to the Corinthians, to the church that was there, but he also knew that that principle would apply to every generation after. And so he knew that even in the 21st century, that even though we might not eat meat that is offered to idols, he knew that we would need the principle if he had not known that or if we did not need it, then he would not have wasted time putting it into his book. Amen. He had so much to say to us and he said the things that we need to know. And so it's not something then that we can just skip over it simply for the fact that God knew and Paul by inspiration wrote the things that are here. We need to look at it and we need to study through it. And so as I think about what is said here now concerning food offered to idols, I need to really get down to the meat, and that's not a pun by the way, I really need to get down to, to what Paul is actually saying. And so it can boil down to something like this. As a Christian, if a thing is not inherently sinful, Am I free to do that thing without committing sin? Now let's talk about that word inherently. We probably understand what that word means. There may be some of the younger folks here that, that don't use that word a whole lot. We don't use it a whole lot. But what, when we're talking about something that's inherently right or wrong or whatever, the word is defined as existing in someone or something thing as a permanent an inseparable element, quality, or attribute. In other words, the thing has, it, it, there's nothing really wrong with the thing itself. Uh, there's no sin that is automatically attached to a certain thing, just because we do that. And so the question is, if, it, if there's no sin that is attached to the thing itself, that, that, that's always attached to it, can we as a Christian, can we participate in that? Can we do that thing freely without sinning? And so that's a pretty good, pretty good question. You know, really, there are three views of things that, that we all need to understand. There's the legalistic view of things. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, 
Basically what we've got is a, a list of do's and don'ts. And as long as we do the do's and we don't do the don'ts, then somebody would count us as being spiritual. And, and you know what? That really doesn't take into account the inner person or other things that might be involved. And so we've got that legalistic view. It's either right and wrong. There's no, no gray areas. And so as long as you do what's right and don't do what's wrong, you're good. And then there's another view that may be termed like this. There's license. Now with license, there really are no gray areas with license either. The problem is there's usually not much black associated with it either. Uh, most things are white in the view of those who would have license. What do you mean by that? Well, almost everything is acceptable as long as it's not specifically forbidden in Scripture. And so a Christian's freedom is virtually absolute and unqualified, as some writers would have us to believe. So as long as, as, long as our conscience doesn't bother us, as long as our conscience is free then there's no real qualifications that are attached to it. Is that really the case? Is, is the legalistic view the right view? Or what about the license view? Is that really the right view? Well, I submit there's a third view, and that's simply this one. That is the Lord's view. And it's always right. It's never wrong. And when we follow His view on a matter, no matter what it is, then we'll always be right and will always be spiritual and will always have a right kind of relationship with Him. You know, for years, there have been some real key issues that have been discussed and debated, been argued, if you will, among Christians. And I could give you a long list, but I want to give you a rather short list today. Um, I want you to think about some of these things and see if you've ever heard anybody ask the question, or perhaps you have asked the question as well. Should a Christian drink alcoholic beverages socially? In other words, social drinking. Is it okay if a Christian drinks socially, drinks a beer every once in a while, or has a glass of wine, or, or participates in those kind of things? Has anybody ever heard that question asked or debated or had anything to do with that? Yeah, I'm sure probably many have. What about this one? Should a Christian go mixed swimming? In other words, boys and girls together, girls barely dressed, boys barely dressed, should they go mixed swimming together? And that is, has been written about and been talked about and been preached about. Perhaps you or someone you know has asked a question like that. Well, what about this one? Should a Christian go to dances? Should they go to the prom? Things like that. Should they do that? Has anyone ever asked that question or, or, or you know, heard someone ask that question? And I want to I just clarify here. There's nothing wrong with those questions. Those are questions we need to be asking because they are things that confront us here in the 21st century. It's the world in which we live. Should we participate in these kinds of things? You may have heard this one. Should a Christian get tattoos and, and, and multiple piercings? Is it good and right for a Christian to do that? And so, again, as we look at it, these are, these are things that 
that our society is dealing with. And we as Christians, because we live in a world, in a society like that, we have to deal with them too. And so, what is it that we're talking about? Well, as a Christian, if a thing is not inherently sinful, am I free to do that thing without committing sin? Is it wrong to go swimming? in and of itself, to get wet, get in water, things like that. And so that's the question that was asked by the Corinthians. Remember, they had written to the Apostle Paul, evidently, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 1. They had a list of questions. Paul begins to answer those questions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he'll continue through the end of the chapter in dealing with the questions that they have asked. It was on their mind. And just because they expressed it in asking about the eating of the meat that's been offered to idols doesn't mean that what Paul says applies only to that. It's the principle that's involved that we as Christians need to draw from it and that we need to glean and have and understand. And it's a a question that should be on our mind and needs to be answered even today. And so you can already see then that, that we can't just skip over because we read verse number 1. We've got to read and study and understand what God penned, what had the Apostle Paul penned for us that we could read tonight and that applies to our lives tonight and try to glean what God wants us to glean from that. And so let's go to the Corinthian concern then. Let's think about what Again, what they were asking. Again, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse number 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols. One thing that was on their mind was this practice that evidently was going on. And, and, and what Paul explains here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is that there's nothing inherently wrong with the meat. In other words, the meat that had been offered to idols was not defiled. There was no sin that was attached to it. Now, some already knew that. Some of those Christians at Corinth knew that and had that knowledge and evidently were blatantly exercising their right to eat such, that meat that was offered to idols, and in doing so, some of the weaker Christians who did not understand fully were being caused to sin. There was something that could, could cause these other people, these, these weaker Christians, these who did not know better, there was something about what they were doing that might cause them to stumble and to fall. And it seems that the weaker Christians who, who probably had been converted from idolatry remember that that was a rampant thing in the first century, that the weaker Christians who had probably been converted from idolatry in seeing the more knowledgeable Christians eating thought that there might still be something attached to the eating of the meat that was offered to idols. So in other words, as they looked and they saw that there was possible significance then they would continue to hold on at least a certain amount of allegiance to those idols that they formerly had worshipped. 
Now that was the concern. That was what they're wanting to know. Can we go ahead and do that? And so Paul answers their question. Paul writes by inspiration to help them out, to help them understand. Now we know the church at Corinth was a church that was, was riddled with problems. And, and there were all kinds of problems. We started with the chapter 1 and the division that they had. Well, this again seemed to be contributing to the division and the problems within that church. And so Paul knows that he must, needs to answer that question. So, he begins in chapter 8 at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul, what is it that you're saying? What is it that you mean? Again, the more mature Christians just knew that there was nothing wrong with the eating of the meat. They knew that there was no sin that was attached to it. Even though it had been sacrificed to idols, so long as they did not eat it as a sacrifice, there was nothing that was wrong with it. You know, maybe they had heard Paul speak about Peter and his experience that we read about in uh, the book of Acts chapter 10, especially verses 9 through 16. Uh, we know that Peter was up on the housetop and, and it was about the sixth hour and he began to pray. And the Bible tells us that Peter was hungry and he begins to pray. And you remember the vision that, that Peter saw. There was, a, as it were, a sheep that was let down from heaven and it had all kinds of animals in it. And in the dream, in the vision, Peter was told to arise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, you know, God forbid that me, a Jewish boy, would grab one of those pigs that's in this sheep and go make some barbecue. In other words, I have never eaten anything unclean and I'm not about to start now. And it was explained to Peter that, hey, what I have made clean, you don't call it unclean. Arise and kill. And he, what, the, what the illustration was that God was portraying to Peter was that the food was fine. Now we understand there was a, an underlying thing that he was teaching Peter. He, he was about to have a visit from some people from Cornelius. And, and so the bigger picture was that these Gentiles over here, of which Cornelius was one of them, deserve to hear the gospel. Don't call that Gentile a dog. Don't call that Gentile unclean. Don't call that a Gentile one who is unworthy of hearing the gospel. But it's in that vision that God reveals not just to Peter to go to the Gentiles, but that even he as a Christian was not under those Old Testament laws of, of not eating various kinds of meat. And so maybe they've heard Paul speak about that. They're Gentiles, after all, who are making up this, this church here. Maybe they had heard Paul speak about something like that. And they knew that meat was okay. 
Now, as we look at it, they knew that it was food. And food that was to be eaten for nourishment. And just because it had been given as a sacrifice to a pagan god didn't make it unclean. You do realize what happened when they offered these various sacrifices, don't you? Part of the sacrifice, part of the animal, was burned on the altar. Part of that animal was kept by the, by the person who was making the sacrifice, the one who was giving the sacrifice, to be eaten later. And yet a third part of that was given to the priests who were offering the sacrifice. And in a setting like that, there were so many sacrifices that were being made that the priest could not eat everything that was being given to him. And so what they would do is they would take the meat that had been given to them, put it into the marketplace, and sell it. It's like the butcher shop. You go to that place, you buy your food, you buy your meat, and you go take it home and you cook it. And so there was nothing inherently wrong with that. The mature Christian said, we know it's not wrong. That was true, but had they become so egotistical that they were causing harm and causing damage? You know, what Paul points out here in this passage, verses 1 through 3, is that sometimes knowledge can make one arrogant. These, these mature Christians could possibly look down on the weaker Christians because they just didn't understand. When they would say, well, you really shouldn't do that, they didn't understand. And they say there's, there's arguments that could take place. And so as we look at it and we think about it, Paul says, you know, it's not whether you're right or wrong, it's another principle. There is love that must be considered. And that's what he talks about here, especially in verse number 3. We've got to have that love, the same kind of love that God had for us when we deal with anyone. Our brothers and sisters in Christ our friends and our neighbors, with anyone. We have to have that kind of love. And so Paul's point comes to something like this. Because of that, don't look at your freedom. Look at their need. Don't look just at what is okay for you, but look at the need of those who are around you. And if you really love them as God directs you to love them, you will do, won't do anything that will confuse, offend, or weaken their faith. Whenever we do anything that we do on this earth, we need to remember that. We need to understand that principle that underlies it. And then in verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul, he, he continues and he reaffirms the fact that an idol is nothing. There's really nothing about it. Therefore, as so the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. It, 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 yeah, there's a pile of gold or silver or, or, or wood or whatever, but there's no real God that's attached to that idol. It's something that's been crafted and made by man's hand. 
Therefore, it's the eating of food offered to idols. We know that an idol has no real existence and there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom, are, uh, uh, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You see, as, as Paul says, there, there's really no other God. We know that. It's just a lump of silver, gold, or something else. But there were some who, who attached more to it than that. Some evidently weren't fully convinced that there wasn't something about that idol that they shouldn't hold on to. Now, if you have been raised a certain way all of your life and you have been taught to respect that idol, to worship that idol all of your life, don't you think you might have a little attachment to it as well? That was the problem. Some still having that soft spot could very easily be tempted to eat the meat that had initially been offered as the sacrifice, but really there was nothing wrong with it. They could be tempted to eat that sacrifice not just as food to nourish their body, but as an homage as a praise, as a worship of that old idol. If such persons followed that example of the more knowledgeable believers, the ones who knew that there was no, no idol there, no, nothing that was really there, and go ahead and eat, and, and, and their consciences are defiled, you know, they, they, just, they just can't grasp everything yet, if they go ahead and do that, then they do what's wrong. Paul would also address this same matter in the book of Romans chapter 14 at verse 23. He concludes that passage by saying this, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In reality, the food was not the issue with God. He said food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do eat it and no better off if we do. You see, food is spiritually neutral. It doesn't get us closer to God and it doesn't take us away from God. The food is spiritually Nourish, uh, neutral. And so the general point then is doing things that are not inherently wrong, they, it, it truly has no bearing with our relationship with God. However, and that's a big word, 
However, what would not otherwise be wrong for us becomes wrong if it becomes a stumbling block to those who are weaker. That is the thing that that Paul is trying to get us to understand. That that food has no bearing on our spirituality. It's not going to make us closer. It's not going to push us away. And those who are stronger understand that. But those who are weaker don't. And so that brings us to verses 9 through 11. And Paul writes, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, sort of like eating in the marketplace, the restaurant, if you will, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? To go ahead and and do what you know is not supposed to be done, yet he doesn't fully grasp that. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Through your knowledge, he is destroyed. The word destroyed has the idea of he comes to sin and possibly loses his soul because of what he or she has seen you do. You know what? Paul goes on and says, for you to lead that weaker brother to that point is for you to sin against that weaker brother. Look at verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Notice he says you sin against the brother. But what happens when we sin against the brother? We really and truly sin against Christ. Now now let it come home to you. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, at verse number 40, when we're standing, as Jesus portrays it, we're standing before the judgment seat. And He says, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, all that, those kind of things. And some of them said, well, when did we do that? And some said, when did we not do it? Do you remember His answer? For as much as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. If you sin against the brother, then you sin against Christ. And surely there's no Christian who wants to sin against his Lord, Christ. And so tonight, so if, though a thing is not inherently wrong, in this case with the uh, Corinthians, the eating of meat, though it's not inherently wrong, If it causes a brother to stumble, Paul says we shouldn't do it. Look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I'll never do that. Sin against that brother and sin against my Lord. It may be Nothing wrong with it, inherently wrong with it. The meat is not in any way defiled. But if I have, if I do something that causes a brother to stumble, then I'm wrong. 
I shouldn't do it. And Paul says he would not do that. In the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, you do remember what Jesus said. The Bible said he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You see, that's the principle that Paul is operating under. To sin against that brother is also to sin against Christ. And so though that thing is not inherently wrong, we can't do it. Now, apply that same thought to social drinking. I can drink a little bit, but I'm not going to get drunk. But how many would be encouraged when they see you take a drink to go ahead and drink and then drink some more and more until they become drunk? You see, that principle that Paul introduced in chapter 8 at verse 1 and that he discusses through the remaining part of that chapter is applicable here. That's where we apply these things today. What about this one? Apply it to mixed swimming and dancing. You say, well, I'm not going to lust after the girls or the boys, whether I'm at a mixed swimming event or whether I'm at a dance or whatever. I'm not going to do it. But if we're honest, are there other people who might? That if they see us do it, that they participate in it, and they do it. And they lust. And they lose their soul. I've sinned against that person. And I've sinned against my Lord. And I can't do that. You see, that principle that Paul introduced in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse 1 is applicable in this case as well. And so we have to apply the principles that God puts into His Bible. You know, if the Bible went through and addressed every single issue one at a time that a Christian would ever come in contact with, that he would ever face, how big would the Bible be? I mean, how many trucks would you have to have in order to haul a paper copy around? We could do it on a, on a computer, you know, fairly easily. But if he addressed every matter, you see, the Bible authorizes things by principles or condemns things by principles. And God gave us a mind and an understanding to be able to grab these things and look at them and analyze them and understand them and apply them in whatever situation we might find ourselves. Amen. But you know, not only that, here's another question that we started with. Apply that same concept to things such as multiple piercings and tattoos. It, does it have any bearing here? Is there anything that we can learn from, from what is said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Is there anything that we need to look at? Now, let me just say as we begin a discussion here that we want to be very careful because our goal is 
not to shame or to hurt or do anything for anyone. And it's certainly not to reach unwarranted conclusions, which sometimes people do. We want to be sure that the things that we say are the things that God says. We don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to just license everything. Remember, we want to do what the Lord teaches us. And so, what about that, that one that we have on the screen at this point? As with many other things, there are some misconceptions out there, aren't there? Somebody says, well, preacher, don't you know the Bible condemns piercings and tattoos? And sometimes folks will quote passage from the Old Testament to make their point. That passage is found in Leviticus chapter 19 at verse 28, English Standard Translation, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. But you know what? Does that passage apply to us? Does it apply to someone today who would want to have a piercing or tattoo? Is it really something that we should look at? You know, truly I believe that we are to rightly divide the Word of God, as we're told in the book of 1 Timothy. And we're to handle aright the Word. And I'm not sure that in this case, to quote this verse and say, okay, all of this is completely banned today, I'm not sure that's the case. For example, we have to take into consideration what the chapter is about and what the chapter says. Uh, in the same chapter, Leviticus chapter 19, look at verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. How many of you, when you picked the stuff out of your garden this past summer, left the stuff on the edge and allowed your friends and neighbors who are poor to come and gather that stuff? You say, well, preacher, that doesn't apply. That's in the Old Testament. Same chapter. We need to be careful how we divide the Word of God. What about this one? What about verse number 19? In the same chapter, the, the passage says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. And you shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. We used to have Santa Gertrudis cows. And if I'm correct, they're a mixture of two, a Brahma and something else, Angus. Were we wrong to have those beautiful red colored cows? Uh, how many of you had corn and peas in the same field? 
tomatoes and okra in the same field. Does somebody need to check the tag on your shirt or blouse tonight and see if you have such a percent cotton and such a percent polyester? That's what this verse said in the same chapter. What about verses 23 through 25? When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat it of its fruit to increase its yield. For you, I am the Lord your God. And we're not talking about a tree that doesn't bear for four or five years or whatever until it gets mature. We're talking about a tree that's mature. Would you be willing to forego that for five years? You see, we have to be careful when we divide the Word of God. And so what was Moses, what was God trying to teach them back in the Old Testament? Well, you see, God was keeping the Israelites from adopting the heathen practices that were associated with idolatry at that time. If you go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18 at verse 28, you remember that famous confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And when they couldn't get Baal to answer them, what did they do? They cried aloud cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances. They pierced themselves until the blood gushed out upon them. Those piercings and the tattoos that were associated with idolatry is what he was forbidding at that time. But I want us to understand tonight as we make application of the principles were taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That tattoos and piercings have always been intended to send a message. That's not something that just modern day people came up with. They have always been intended to send a message. In days gone by, that message was this. It was associated with rebellion. I'm my own person and I'll do it just in spite of what other people say. Just to show them that I am. And today, many tattoo artists say people get tattoos as a, simply a matter of self-expression. They're designed to let others know who they really are. And so... Again, it seems that tattoos and piercings have been and always been and probably always will be to send a message. And so what is the message that others get? What is the message that people get when they see us in that way? There was a study that was done in 2012-2013 by Nicholas Guggen that was published in Psychology Today. Men were asked to rate a 24-year-old woman who was seen in a 
and a photograph on a range of personal characteristics. And some of the men were shown a photo with the girl. She had a black dragon tattoo on her upper left arm. And others were shown the photo without the tattoo. Now, what was the message that was sent? The study. When men saw the woman with the tattoo, they judged her in these ways. Same woman. One with a tattoo, one without. But they judged her as less athletic, less motivated, less honest, less generous, less religious, less intelligent, less artistic, less attractive. What is the message? We may not be intending to send the message, but what is the message that others are getting? We have to be concerned. They judged her less in all of these things, except for when they saw the dragon tattoo, they judged her as more promiscuous. Guggen was intrigued by his study. And so he decided to follow up and he did some more research on that aspect. And his study showed, as he continued his study, it showed that male beachgoers, he, he actually went out to the beach and conducted a study. And in the, in the Psychology of Today article, the study is discussed, how it was done and all of that. But the conclusion that he reached was this. His study showed that the male beachgoers thought their chances of having a date or having sex with the females involved in the study were significantly greater when they were displaying a tattoo than when they were not. That's the message that's being sent. And, and studies have repeated the same thought. So we need to be concerned. But you know what? Somebody is bound to say, well, people shouldn't be judgmental. They shouldn't judge others in this way. Perhaps not. I'll grant you that. They don't know us. They shouldn't judge us. But they do. And the thing about it is, God didn't place the onus on the non-Christian, the responsibility, on the non-Christian or, or the weak. He placed the responsibility on the faithful Christian to do what was right. To send the right message. To let others know what is good and what is right. Sometimes, even if there's nothing inherently sinful in a matter, the Christian must forego certain things. You know, some things are not wrong in and of themselves. Swimming, getting a nice picture on our body, 
They're not wrong in and of themselves. But they can be, and not just can be, they are wrong if our doing them causes another to sin. That's what Paul spent time in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 teaching us. And when we look and say, well, it was meat offered to idols and it doesn't apply to us, really that's not the case. It's the principle that is involved. And so if something we do causes another person to sin, a Christian must be willing to forego that in order to keep that person from losing his or her soul. so that others might be saved. Wow. When I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I just thought he was talking about something that didn't concern me. But in reality, it's a question and an answer that every single one of us who are Christians need to hear. If we've been guilty of those kinds of things and we need to get our life right with God, ask, ask, you know, for God's assistance and for God's help. We don't want anyone to stumble. We want to be forgiven by God and by all. And so as we look at it, let's not, not just look at a passage, any, any passage that we read in God's Word and lightly skip over it. God put it there for a reason. God wanted us as Christians to use our mind and discern. Come to the right conclusion about His Word. It may be tonight that there's someone here who needs to respond to be baptized for the remission of their sin. If that is the case with you tonight, we would love to assist you with that. If you'd like to know more, we'd love to sit down with you and study more from God's Word. There are questions of, of, of any nature that you would like to discuss. I would be more than happy to sit and to study from God's Word with you, no matter what the questions might be. It may be tonight that there's something in your life that is amiss and you need to make right. That's the case, and you need to respond publicly tonight. Why don't you do it right now as together?